Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, it says, Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God? Because of your tradition. For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother. And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. When he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear and understand. Not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. Then his disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Yeah, this is an appropriate time to laugh. But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Then Peter answered and said to him, Explain this parable to us. So Jesus said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. In this shocking and surprising chapter, we're going to cover in broad, broad strokes the defiling of a man, the daughter with a devil, and the deeds of the great physician himself. In this passage, Jesus will once again have to deal with opposition resistance, controversy. The religious leaders make their way all the way from Jerusalem to provide fresh opposition to Jesus and his disciples. The controversy centers around an accusation made by the religious leaders towards the disciples of Jesus. Apparently, the disciples were observed eating certain foods, but they failed to Observe the traditional washings that would ensure kosherim or cleanliness. The claim is that the disciples transgressed 
the tradition of the elders in verse 2. The implication, of course, is that Jesus either didn't care what was going on or approved of such actions. And so they're going to give him a, a little lesson. So the accusation, not just simply against the disciples, but against Jesus as well. In verse 1 it says, Then the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. In order to understand the accusation, we have to revisit some important ideas the big picture about God's plan for the Jewish people. Most of you realize that the Jewish people have been often called the chosen people. They are chosen by God to bring forth the Messiah. They are chosen by God to preserve the oracles of God. The Jewish people were to be holy. They were to be separated from sin and they were to be separated to God and in the Old Testament W.H. Griffith Thomas notes the sacrifices purifications and other ritual institutions were outward and visible object lessons of absolute necessity of the complete separation of from evil so think about that in your brains for just a moment. The Jewish people were to be holy. They were to be separated from sin. They were to be separated towards God. God required the Jewish people to be separate. And so there were distinctions in food. There were distinctions in dress. There were distinctions in custom. And again, what was God's purpose for this radical separation and holiness. God's purpose was for the Jewish people to regard themselves as a spiritual people, submissive to God, obedient to God, to be an instrument of blessing. Not just simply to themselves, but everyone who, were, who was around them. God's ultimate plan for the Jewish people were that they were to be the oracles of God, the keeper of the revelation of God, chosen by God to be a blessing to the nation. And so God promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah and David a Messiah, that there would be a solution to the hardness and the wickedness and the circumstances of the heart. But tragedy set in. Some of the Jewish people misunderstood God's plan for separateness and holiness. Some Jewish people came to think of themselves as superior to the Gentiles. And then they began to think of themselves as superior to the non-observant Jews. The Jewish leaders began to believe certain things 
that were forbidden to the Jews were essentially evil in and of themselves, unclean evil in and of themselves. Acting on that view, they increased the requirements to ensure that cleanliness, and they thus emptied the law of God of both its spiritual meaning and its purpose. And so a delegation arrives from Jerusalem on what they think is a mission from God. To ask Jesus an official question. They're concerned that the disciples of Jesus may be putting the law of God at risk. By not observing the tradition of the elders. The disciples are accused of ritual impurity. And again we might find it difficult to understand why the religious leaders were so concerned with something as trivial as you might think washing your hands before dinner and maybe you grew up in that kind of a world. I know I did. My granny would always say, "Did you wash your hands?" And the right answer had to always be, "Yes, I did." And if the answer was no, guess what you did? You went and you washed your hands. It's interesting to me to note that they didn't accuse Jesus of religious impurity, but rather of condoning ritual impurity among his disciples. As if Jesus is letting them get away with stuff. And we have to understand that many Jews would rather die than be, become unclean. One ancient historian relates the story of one Jew who in the first century was imprisoned in a Roman prison cell and he used his water rations to wash his hands. He risked dying of thirst rather than being rendered unclean. Centuries before, thousands of Jews were killed by the wicked Greek ruler Antiochus Epiphanes because he tried to force feed the people to eat pork. And many refused. And many were killed. The Mishnah, which is a compilation of Jewish oral laws that was compiled in the second century AD, describes the tradition of the elders as offense around the law and that's a good description because if the bible says something sometimes what people will do is they'll draw a fence in order to not even come close to breaking what they perceive to be as the law tradition as seen through the eyes of the religious leaders was an added layer of defense to protect God's law from transgression, to assist people in keeping the law. And like many traditions, they would then become increasingly bizarre. For example, if you were an observant Jew, you were forbidden to look into the mirror on the Sabbath day. And you might be wondering, well, why? Well, you might see a gray hair. You might be tempted to pluck it. You might see something on your face or on your head and reaping and sowing was forbidden on the Sabbath day. In their world, that constituted work and work was forbidden and therefore additional activities were prohibited that might tempt you to work on the Sabbath day before every meal. And of course, in between every course, you had to wash your hands and you didn't just wash them. 
You had to wash them in a specific way that was ordained by the elders. You had to take one hand and pour the water on the other until the water trickled just below the wrist. And then you had to take the other hand and wash the other hand till it trickled just below the wrist. Certain animals were unclean. A woman after giving birth to a child was considered unclean. And so in a strange twist, men refused to touch their wives after they gave birth to their child. In the modern culture, in a stranger twist, women refused to touch their husbands after they give birth to a child. But you get it. If you touched a Gentile, you were rendered unclean. And let me help you understand. By being rendered unclean, you couldn't go to the temple. You couldn't offer the sacrifice. If you touched a Gentile, not only were you rendered unclean, but if you touched anything that the Gentile owned, you were rendered unclean. And so you can imagine the system became oppressive. And unscriptural. But the Jews were deadly serious about it. And so look at the confrontation by Jesus. Look what it says. He answered and said to them, why do you also transgress the commandment of God? Because of your tradition. The Pharisees' commitment to ritual purity made them extremely pious, self-righteous, obnoxious. In one sense, they broke God's commandments by the observance of mere man-made tradition. In verse 4, Jesus says, for God commanded. This isn't a suggestion. God commanded saying, honor your father and your mother. Honoring your father and your mother cannot mean dishonoring your mother and your father. And you may come up with all kinds of excuses not to honor them. But the commandment is clear. Jesus says, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God. Then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect in your tradition. In order to understand what Jesus is saying, <coughs> we have to understand in part what's going on. He gives one, and I'm sure he could have given many, many, many more examples of the scripture bashing. The fifth com commandment required the Jewish people to honor their father and their mother. Mark's gospel in chapter 7 verse 11 adds, But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is korban. That is a gift to God. It was an idiomatic expression in that culture that says whatever resources I have, I've dedicated them to, the, to God and to the temple and to the work of God and therefore I can't honor you. It's a gift of God. It would be like saying, hey, you know what? Instead of helping out my mom and dad, you know, I made a vow. I vowed that I was going to give a million dollars to the church. And... Who am I to break my vow? To the religious Jew, in their tradition, it was more important to honor the promise or the vow to God 
than to keep God's commandments. Now, this brings up an interesting dilemma. The interesting dilemma is, what if you make a vow to God, which is clearly unbiblical, unscriptural, um, clearly wrong? Uh, imagine you promise God and you say, I swear to God I'm never going to go to church. We'll see you laugh. But it's pretty certain that a lot of people have said a lot of things that they regret and that they shouldn't have. And if you've made a promise to God that will, in effect, dishonor him or disobey him, then you need to rethink what it is that you've done and you need to be able to say what's happened is a sin and repent of your sin. Jesus, in effect, is saying, Mom, Dad, I can't help you. I made a promise to God. The money's promised to God. And so Jesus says in verse 7, hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you saying, now Jesus will charge the religious leaders with hypocrisy. We all know what that means. People in pretense, pretenders, posers, actors, People mouthing lines. I tell the story of when I went to the beach in, in California and two couples were fighting with each other and they were trying to think of every wicked and disgusting thing that they could call each other and they exchanged this litany of the most filthy things that you've ever heard and finally in frustration the woman trying to figure out the most, the most damaging thing she could say to this guy she said you Tourist. <laughs> yeah, in California, that's one of, you, you can't accuse somebody of, of not really belonging. Jesus reminds them that they were wearing a mask. They, they didn't really believe God's word. Now, this in and of itself is bad, but Jesus knows that they are religious leaders. They're supposed to be examples. They're supposed to be servants. He reminds them that their slavish devotion to man-made traditions not only made the word of God void, but ensured the presence of hypocrisy in their heart, hypocrisy in their speech, hypocrisy in their life. And he quotes Isaiah chapter 29 verse 13 to punctuate his point. When he says in verse 8, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Jesus is making clear what everyone knows. That you can come to church, that you can raise your hands, that you can speak words, and your mind and your heart and your affection is somewhere else. He makes it clear, and in vain they worship me. The vanity that he's making reference to is that there is such a thing as a kind of a ritual. There is such a, a thing as a kind of worship that leaves you distant from the God that you're seeking to worship. And he basically is making the point that their 
head is engaged and their mouth is engaged, but their heart is disengaged. And it becomes a warning for each and every one of us. Because each and every one of us is going to make a decision every moment of every day. And that is, are we going to sever our affection from the word of God and the son of God? Or are we going to return to God? Are we going to make our way back into a real relationship, a real friendship. In verse 9 it says, And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Well, does this mean that we can't have any traditions or that we can't have any rules? I don't think that that's the point that Jesus is making. It isn't a blanket condemnation of tradition. It's a blanket condemnation of the kind of tradition that undermines the character of God and the word of God and the gospel of God. It has to mean those rules and traditions that give us permission to break God's commandments. And so our loyalty is always to the scripture. Our loyalty is always to the revelation of the word of God that's been given to us by God in this thing that we call the Bible. William Barclay calls the passage one of the most revolutionary in all of the New Testament. And for good reason. Because he's asking this one great big question. And the great big question, of course, is do your traditions keep you from obeying God? Do your traditions keep you from honoring God, obeying God, believing God, walking with God? People in Jesus' day weren't all that different from people today. The religious leaders thought, well, look, if I say the right things, if I observe the right washings, if I go to the temple, if I offer the right sacrifices, then everything will be fine. If I play fair, if I go to church, if I read my Bible, if I give money to the poor, and if I give money to the church on occasion, then God will like me. He'll have to accept me. He'll have to forgive me. But something inside of you begins to gnaw and disturb you because you realize that good deeds can't save you. Do our traditions keep us from obeying God? Do they keep us from neglecting the poor or the needy? Do our traditions keep us from the word of God? Do our traditions replace the word of God in our life? I once pastored a church that was event-driven. At this church, they wanted me to preach and teach on whatever the holiday du jour was. It's Flag Day. It's Patriot Day. It's Mother's Day. It's Father's Day. It's Graduation Day. The expectation was a patriotic speech or an inspirational speech or a motivational speech. And I said, forget it. I'm a Bible teacher. I'm going to open up the Bible. We're going to actually teach what the Bible says. We're going to open up God's word. We're going to be informed by God's word. And then 
as crazy as this sounds, I'm going to urge you to believe what we're reading. <laughs> Not only am I going to teach you what it's saying, I'm going to urge you to believe what it's saying. And then I'm going to ask you to obey based on what it says. I'm going to preach about the horror of sin and I'm going to talk about the reality of grace. I'm going to mention God's promise of eternal life, which is only found in Jesus. We're going to do what Paul says. When I came to you, we preached Christ and him crucified for the remission of sin. He rose from the dead, grace for our justification. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father where he ever lives to make intercession for us. We're going to preach the gospel and we're going to do it over and over and over again. By the way, do you, th do you think keeping traditions, is that what makes God happy? Well, it depends. Some traditions remind us of God's love and God's mercy and God's grace, his forgiveness. If keeping the tradition means neglecting God's word or disobeying God's word or neglecting God's people, then we have to reject the tradition. It's crazy to me that people will come up to me and say, Hey, you know what? Christmas Day falls on Sunday this year. We're not going to have church, right? What? Well, you know, it's my tradition that we stay home with my family on Christmas morning. Do you know what? I'm giving each and every person here permission that if on Christmas morning you want to stay home with your family, by all means, stay home with your family. But I'm having church on Sunday. I'm having church on Sunday every Sunday. I'm going to have church on Sunday whether you like it or not. I'm going to have church on Sunday whether you come or not. I hope you do come. You know, the story is told of a Bible teacher in 1928. He was giving a series of lectures... And after the lecture, a group of older women came to the pastor complaining about certain women in the congregation who weren't wearing stockings. And by stockings, I mean hose or nylon. And the ladies asked if the pastor wouldn't mind rebuking these young ladies for the impropriety of not wearing stockings. And the pastor said, did you know that Mary, the mother of Jesus, didn't wear stockings? And their eyes got really big and their mouth fell open. Why? No, we didn't know that. Well, did you know that as a matter of fact, stockings were first worn in Italy in the 15th century? Why no, we didn't know that. Well, do you know that they were actually brought onto the scene by prostitutes who were trying to attract attention to themselves for the solicitation of sexual favors? And then their eyes got really big. And then he said, do you realize that a European lady scandalized the entire continent of Europe by wearing stockings and pretty soon all the fashionable women were wearing stockings. And by the time Queen Victoria rolled around, it became a badge of propriety and, and, and prudence. Prudence. 
The challenge has always been and will continue to be for people who suggest that the outside things are what are important instead of the inside condition of the heart. And look what it says in verse 10, the source of wickedness. And now Jesus is going to go to town. When he, when he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear and understand not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but it's what comes out of the mouth that defiles a man. It's not what you put into your body that makes you unclean. It's the stinking wickedness of the human heart. And what a bombshell. What an explosion in the hearts of the religious hitmen. They pulled a moral gun on Jesus and he responds with a moral nuclear explosion. It's your thought life that pollutes you. It's your heart that stinks. The real problem is the human heart. Our worst enemy is our wicked heart, bent on rebellion, leaning towards selfishness, filled with foolishness and wickedness, rather than humility and selflessness and ministry towards others. And in verse 12, it says, the disciples came to him and said, you know that the Pharisees were offended by what they heard this saying. And you suppose Jesus goes, I'm so sorry. Wow, that's not what I wanted to happen. This is such a powerful verse. Jesus, you've offended the religious leaders. You've accused them of being lawbreakers. You've accused them of being all talk and no heart. You've suggested that their lives are really one gigantic facade. That it's a religious masquerade. But he answered and he said, Every plant which my heavenly father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. The response of Jesus is remarkable. Here's what he's saying. Whatever cherished belief that you hold on to, if it doesn't come from God, it runs the risk of being plucked up by the roots and then being thrown into the God's dumpster. You see, if it is separate from and distinct from what Jesus has revealed about God, what Jesus has revealed about himself, what Jesus has revealed about the human condition, what Jesus has revealed about sin, what Jesus has revealed about the solution to the sin, then the chances are you've got to take whatever it is with a grain of salt. It's God who establishes the truth. It's God who reveals himself in his love and his will and his guidance. And whatever cherished belief you hold on to if it doesn't come from the Lord if it doesn't come from the Bible if it doesn't come from Jesus then you need to be prepared that it might just have to disappear one day on a regular basis almost on a monthly basis people will call my radio program and say well can I go to heaven and have a tattoo well, we laugh, but I, I need you to understand this. Because in Leviticus, it was forbidden to have a tattoo. 
Why were the Jewish people forbidden to have tattoos? The Jewish people were forbidden to have tattoos because in the ancient world, tattoos often became a a sign, a signature of love and loyalty to foreign gods. And God said, I don't want you to assign your love and your loyalty to anyone other than me. But we live in a culture that sometimes thinks that the ink can somehow penetrate the epidural layer, make its way through the muscle, and somehow into the bloodstream and into your heart, and that somehow, some way, that having a tattoo makes you wicked and defiles your heart. Imagine you believe that ink from a tattoo can pervert you or coffee from Starbucks can make you sinister and evil. I want you to think just for a moment. What were the religious leaders' cherished beliefs? It's a simple question. This is their cherished beliefs that the outside matters more than the inside that the religious rituals left unobserved defile you the religious leaders went to great lengths to make sure that the outward exercise of piety was in place, but they neglected the inner issues of mercy and compassion and judgment and love, and they wound up perverting the Levitical law that it was intended to teach the true nature of sin and the principles of holiness, because when God speaks on an eternal matter, we're commanded to listen. Jesus says... Let them alone. They're blind leaders of the blind. They're unfit to guide the spiritual destinies of others. When they act as guides, it's going to lead to inevitable disaster. The blind aren't the best source of subject when it comes to light and direction. And do you know what this means? It has to mean that your unsaved family members, your unsaved father, your unsaved mother, your unsaved political leader, your unsaved celebrity spokesperson isn't necessarily fit to speak on issues of light and love and morality and salvation. They're not the best source to try to determine what's moral or spiritual. Political leaders and educational leaders may claim to speak with authority and credibility on moral matters. But when they say out loud, the Bible can't be trusted and you can't believe the Bible, and you can't believe what the Bible says about this subject, then guess what? You should find a place inside of your mind where you say, I'm not going to listen to that person anymore. Because here's what they're doing. They're inviting me to believe that what God says isn't true. 
And the same could also be said for our brothers and sisters who are trapped in legalism. You've heard me define this over and over again. Legalism is when my opinion becomes your obligation. It's when my opinion becomes your obligation. But you're not obligated to do anything other than what Jesus asks you to do. And you are obligated to do everything he asks you to do. And in verse 15 it says, Then Peter answered and said to him, Explain this parable to us. <laughs> Peter asks for an explanation. So Jesus said, are you also without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth and goes into the stomach and is eliminated? This is biology 101, Peter. It's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you unless, but Jesus never ate at Golden Corral either. I got to tell you, there are some things that can go into your mouth that can wind up defiling you. You eat certain things, you go, hey, I, it's okay for me to eat this. And then you pop it into your mouth and your esophagus starts to rebel and your stomach starts to churn and your intestines mount a coup. But Jesus is still right. That no matter how disgusting whatever it is that you've decided to eat. That when your stomach absorbs it and when it goes into your intestines and it's eventually eliminated. It can't find its way into your soul. It can't pollute your spirit. In verse 18 it says, but those things which proceed out of the mouth that come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. Jesus had already earlier spoken, and he said that it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. The Lord is in effect saying, how could you not understand this? How can you not understand that sin is inside of you? It's in your heart. In the human heart, there's a constant war between what God wants and what the heart demands. The battle is in the heart. Sin is in the heart. What makes us right with God? A clean heart. What makes us wrong with God? An unclean heart. What defiles our heart? Sin. Someone has once said, we're motivated by at least two reasons. The one that we're willing to disclose and the one that we're not willing to talk about. I'm going to suggest to you that in Jeremiah when it says that the heart of man is desperately wicked and who can know it that sometimes we don't even know the sickness and the depravity that's inside of us. Jesus is in effect saying, what's in your heart? It's like that stupid commercial. Hey, what's in your wallet? 
Well, what's in your heart? What's your heart's web address? Mine is www.mystinkingheart.com. I know some of you are going to actually go there and go, I wonder what Gino's posted there. (laughs) The way that I'm going to ask you is maybe a little bit different. What's going to happen when Jesus logs on to your heart? What will he find? What will Jesus discover when he wades into your heart? What would the headlines in your own heart read? I want you to note something interesting. Jesus puts on his list of the things that come out of the heart. Look what it says. Evil thoughts. Our thinking informs our behavior and our treatment of others. As Jesus opens the door of the human heart, he's overcome. Whoa! What's been going on inside of this heart? Evil actions begin with evil thoughts. By the way, the word evil here in the original language means carefully laid plans. This isn't just some sort of spontaneous evil. This is a sort of a calculated thought process which results in us deciding that we're going to do what we want to do. And this brings us to an interesting biblical observation. Every single sin in the Bible is preceded by choice. It's preceded by choice. And we live in a world where we elevate choice and honor choice and applaud choice. And don't get me wrong, it is true that God gave you the ability to choose or choose otherwise. But guess what? It was always supposed to be a choice that was filled with content. And let me tell you what I mean by that. It has to be a choice that is filled with content where you decide to honor God and obey God. You see, the choice that is the choice that says, I'm going to do what I want apart from God, apart from God's plan, apart from God's purpose, apart from God's revelation. Bible teachers over the years have pointed out that people don't want to look at their sin. They want to look away from their sin. And I don't blame them. Especially when you read a passage like this. Especially when you're reading it and you begin all of a sudden, just for a moment, to decide to ask and answer this question. What happens when Jesus opens the door of my heart? What does he see? What does he see? And then you ask the most disturbing question you could ever ask of yourself. Am I evil? 
You see, the word evil usually conjures images of torture chambers and death camps and serial killers. Darren Clark Cummings suggests in an article that evil begins when we simply fail to do the good that we should do. It evolves into selfish desires and impatience and unwillingness to be uncomfortable or inconvenienced and seeking simple solutions that do not involve personal sacrifice. Is that evil? Is that wicked. What is the difference between a Nazi's pride and my pride? What is the difference between a serial killer's selfishness and my selfishness? What's the difference between a Ku Klux Klan member's prejudice and my prejudice? Perhaps consequences, but there's something wrong. There's something terribly wrong. Murders, Jesus says, adulteries, fornications. This means sexual sins of every sort. Thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Mark chapter 7, verse 21 and 22 says, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, which means wanting more of what you already have enough of, wickedness. Wickedness means wanton wickedness. It's a disposition of the soul that admits no borders. When Jesus says wickedness, what he is in effect saying is that there's no boundaries. There's no line that you would put in place that would restrict your behavior. It dares no restraints. It's willing to do anything. Deceit. It means to bait a trap. Lewdness. This means the person has lost the ability to understand decency and shame. Lewdness is that moral condition where you don't understand or are unable to appreciate that what you're doing is wrong. Adulteries and fornication describe every kind of sexual vice. Covetousness, the insatiable desire to have more and more. It's been called the curse of having. This is the spirit that grabs at that which it has no right to take from. The heart that Jesus describes is so wicked... It is so corrupt that the Greeks uses this word that Jesus words to describe when you have an infectious disease. That the infectious disease is so profound that everyone who gets near you runs the risk of being infected. This is Jesus' description of the human heart. And I believe that it's a description of my heart. 
It was about nine o'clock at night and a man dashed into the doctor's office in a highly agitated condition and he said to the doctor that he's been in a bad way all day long. The doctor was maintaining decorum and professionalism. He asked if anything had shocked him or upset him. No, the man said, unless it was this letter I got this morning. He showed the letter to the doctor and it stated, if you don't stop running around with my wife, I'm going to blow your head off. And the doc doctor said, well, there's a comparatively simple answer here. Why don't you just stop it? And the patient's face fell and he said, but doctor, the man didn't sign his name. Oh, is right. Oh, you mean there's more than one? You mean there's more than one sin? You mean there's more than one difficulty? You mean there's something, there's something, there's something wrong. There's lots wrong. So have you sought help for your soul? Why don't you tell me a little bit about your heart? What's inside of your heart? And does your tradition allow you to hold on to the sin in your heart? Does your tradition allow you to simply go to church? Does your tradition allow you to simply go through a religious ritual? Does your, does your religion or your tradition allow you to do things and say things and read things and sing things, but your heart never has to change? The popular evangelist Wilbur Chapman told of a preacher friend who delivered a powerful message on the subject of sin. And after the service, one of the church officers confronted the minister in his study and said he was offended by what he said. He said, Pastor, we don't want to talk as openly as you do about man's guilt and corruption. It might make our kids feel uncomfortable. And the man found a drawer and he pulled it out and he pulled out a bottle of strychnine and there was a skull and crossbones on it and in big red letters it said poison. He goes, how would you feel if I took this label and I made a new label and I put peppermint on it? Would I be doing the person a favor? What you're asking me to do is like changing that label. Someone who doesn't know the danger might use it and become very ill. And there's something way more dangerous than the poison that you can stick in your mouth. It's the poison that you allow to creep into your soul and consume your soul and control your behavior. A doctor's mistake is buried. A lawyer's mistake, imprisoned. An accountant's mistake, jailed. A dentist's mistake, pulled. A pharmacist's mistake, dead. A plumber's mistake, stopped. An electrician's mistake, shocking. A carpenter's mistake, sawdust. A teacher's mistake, failure. A printer's mistake, you have to do the job over. 
what happens? What happens when I make a mistake? What happens if I somehow leave you with the impression that your sin is okay and it doesn't have to be dealt with? You see, this is why I have to say what I have to say. Not only is sin powerful and wicked and consequential, but there's a solution to it. You can repent of your sin. You can turn from your sin. You can place your sin at the feet of Jesus on the cross of Calvary and experience a transformation that will go clean inside of you down to your heart. And you can experience forgiveness and hope. But our hearts have to be submitted to Jesus. They have to be given to Jesus. They have to be submitted to the word of God. The problem of sin will never be solved unless we're willing to come to Jesus with our sinful heart and ask the most important question that you could ever ask. Am I a sinner? And if the answer is yes, there's only one logical question to ask. Do I want forgiveness? And if the answer is yes, then the third question is, then why wouldn't you accept Christ as your Savior? Why wouldn't you come to Jesus? Why wouldn't you allow him to be the solution to the problem of sin inside of your heart? Saving faith requires a complete change of heart. Saving faith means not just simply believing that Jesus could do something if he wanted to. But it's allowing Jesus to make that change inside of you. It really is a choice. You can choose by faith to believe the gospel. I hope you do. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every person. Lord, I pray that as we take this horrible journey into the human heart, that, Lord, we would want to get out of there as quickly as possible and allow Jesus in there. The Jesus who loves us, the Jesus who died for us, the Jesus, the Jesus who's willing to live his life in our heart and then live out that character in a way that honors and pleases God. A heart that's more concerned, not with the externals, but with the internals. Not with the appearance of doing what's right, but a willingness to be the man or the woman that God wants me to be. And Lord, I pray, I pray, I pray for that person who's never turned from their sin, whose heart is still polluted and disgusting. Lord, I pray that they would offer you their heart. Lord, I pray that, that, that when ask that question, 
Do you believe that Jesus loves you and died for you? Do you believe that Jesus died to forgive your sin? And do you want to experience forgiveness? That if they said, yes, Lord, I pray that they would just simply pray a simple prayer of confidence and faith. Lord, you know my heart. You know my circumstances. You know my condition. You know that in order for all of the wickedness inside of me to go away, that I'm going to have to love you and trust you and believe you. And that's exactly what I want to do. And so, Lord, I pray that you would honor that prayer, that you would come inside of their heart, change their heart, transform their heart, and give them the ability to pray praise and enter into fellowship and relationship with you in Jesus name and all the saints said let's stand